Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone here in Vancouver for NeurIPS. And I am with Blake Richards. Blake is an assistant professor in the School of Computer Science and the Montreal Neurological Institute at McGill University, uh, as well as a core faculty member at Mila. And you've also got an affiliation with CIFAR. Yes, I'm a Canada CIFAR AI chair and a member of CIFAR's Learning in Machines and Brains program. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, Blake, welcome to the Twomo AI podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. So you are doing a talk here on sensory prediction error signals in the neocortex. Yes. Uh, let's just jump right into that. What's the talk about? Sure. So a lot of people have postulated for a long time that our brains, and in particular the neocortex, the region concerned with higher order thought or functions, if you will, is effectively an unsupervised learning machine. It is there to make uh, predictions about incoming stimuli and that it would use dis differences between those predictions and the actual data that it receives in order to learn about the structure of the world and develop a good internal model. And although there have been many computational studies that have postulated this and this idea has also informed artificial intelligence a great deal, the fact is that there isn't a lot of direct evidence for it in the brain. There are a few initial studies, but uh, myself and my collaborators, Joel Zalberberg at York University, Joshua Bengio also at Mila and Université de Montréal, and Tim Lillicrap at uh, Google DeepMind, we put together a proposal to the Allen Brain Institute uh, a couple of years ago to run some experiments to explicitly look for some of the sorts of prediction error signals that these kinds of models of unsupervised learning in the brain predict would be there. So the Allen Institute has been running a series of studies uh, doing what's called two-photon calcium imaging in mice. This is basically a way to record the activity of many hundreds of neurons at once, as well as their dendritic processes in a live animal. And so we've got recordings of the brains of mice, primary visual cortex, while we expose them to stimuli that follow particular statistical patterns, which we then violate occasionally. And we have found evidence for very clear and really strong responses to those violations of the expected stimulus. And additionally, there are some interesting kind of breakdowns in terms of where those signals appear in the cortical circuit and also uh, some interesting data in terms of the way that it seems to be something that the animals actually learn over multiple exposures to the stimuli. Hmm. So you're conditioning mice to expect some kind of response, then you kind of take a left turn when they're expecting a right, so to speak, and you're observing what's going on in their brains as a result. And so what, you've, right. what you've found is what? So what we've found is um, we've, we've examined two different types of stimuli. One, which is where you've got a consistent visual flow in, in the screen, as it were. So there's these bricks that kind of drift across the screen in a particular direction. Mm -hmm. And they're always consistent in that movement. And then occasionally some of the bricks will start moving in the different direction than the expected one. Uh, Subtly or like... Pretty clearly. Okay. And like you notice it when you watch the stimuli yourself, very much so. Um, 
And for those stimuli, we see a massive response in a particular part of the neocortical microcircuit. The cells go nuts in response to this stimulus. And, mm -hmm. and this seems to happen right off the bat with no training. So that suggests that this particular type of violation of expected stimuli is something that the circuit is hardwired to detect. Mm. But we also have another set of stimuli where we present basically these random patches of edges uh, that are all sampled from where the orientation of the edges are all sampled from a particular distribution. And then occasionally we violate that expectation by sampling from a different distribution for the orientations. And when we uh, present these stimuli to the animal, at first we don't see any responses to the unexpected orientations. Right. But over multiple recording sessions, we start to see huge responses to the unexpected orientations. So what's interesting about this is it suggests that uh, the circuit is able to learn, as it were, to be surprised to particular types of stimuli. And it might, at the same time, be hard-coded to respond to particular other types of violations. We hypothesize that this might have to do with ultimately the evolutionary purpose of mouse visual cortex, one of which would obviously be to help the mouse avoid predators. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that you detect violations of visual flow in your visual field if you're trying to avoid predators because mm -hmm. that's something you want to avoid potentially. You want to see that hawk flying above or That's right, you. exactly. But for the other type of stimuli where, that we're showing them where it's these oriented edges that can violate these patterns, what's interesting is that they don't show that response right away, but they learn to show it. And so that is some evidence that their neocortex is in fact a sort of generative model that can learn the data distribution over time and, and learn to be surprised when data doesn't actually adhere to that distribution. Mm -hmm. In the first case where you've got more of a stark difference in the visual pattern, mm. do they become desensitized to it over time? We don't actually see any evidence for desensitization, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, the signal continues to be very robust over three different days of recording sessions, and each session is an hour long. So even after many repeated exposures of this, they still seem to signal this very strongly, which again suggests that for that particular type of stimulus, this is a hardwired component to the right. circuit. And which is very consistent with the evolutionary, like if you got desensitized to hawks, that'd probably be a bad thing if you're a That's master. right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so there was another element of this work, or at least one that you haven't gone into this level of detail yet, that is talking about the hierarchical nature of inference in these circuits. Yes, that's um, right. Is that a kind of an ancillary result, or is that core to the model that you've developed to understand this stuff? Yeah, so um, the thing that I didn't mention is that what's interesting is that that second type of surprise signal that we see, that the animals learn to be surprised to the orientation of edges in, mm -hmm. that, that occur in an unexpected way, we actually see that signal not in the neurons themselves, but in the dendritic trees of the neurons, and in particular part of the dendritic trees, that is the area... Dendrites being like the fingers that we see in our Sorry. depiction of the nerves. Yes, that's right, exactly. All those little branches that come yeah. out, of the dendrite, or out of the neurons, those right. are dendrites, and, and those are the sites of synaptic inputs to real neurons. Mm -hmm. But uh, real pyramidal neurons in the neocortex, which is a particular type of neuron, it comprises 75 to 80% of the neurons in the neocortex, and it's 
the kind of key information uh, processing cell type in this in this circuit. These cells have uh, one unique dendritic process called the apical dendrite, which they send up. To apical. The, yeah, the apical. Okay. And they kind of like a tree because what they do is they send it up uh, to the top, the surface of the brain, almost like what a tr the trunk of a tree does to okay. get the leaves up to the sunlight. But in this case, they send it up to the surface of the brain and what they receive at this location are the top-down inputs. So higher order information from other parts of the brain. And our data suggests, so, so that is actually where we see uh, those surprise signals that are learned. And from some additional Meaning analysis- at the top of the brain or in this structure overall? In this dendritic structure that is up at the top of the brain. Okay. And what that data suggests and some of our other analyses suggest is that this surprise signal, this, this you know, oh, that violated my expectations signal that the animals learn is being driven by top-down inputs. So that suggests that the entire model that they have for the world that they're learning is a hierarchical model where it's actually the higher order parts of the network, if you will, for machine learning people, you can think of it as the upper layers of the network that are actually detecting the violation of the expected statistics. And then they are communicating that back down the hierarchy to the lower layers of the network. Is there a relationship between this hierarchical nature of inference that you've observed and uh, the idea of spiking in neural nets where a signal becomes significant after a certain number of uh, times, for lack of a scientific word. Sure. <laughs> you know, where there's like a buildup of uh, the signal and it crosses some threshold? Potentially. I mean, we do find that the surprise response that we see in this circuit takes around 300 milliseconds to appear after the initial surprising stimulus. Mm -hmm. And to put that into perspective, that's a pretty long time. Usually it takes around 50 milliseconds or so for visual stimuli to get into visual cortex. So that it's means... A, and this is the second case as opposed to... This the, is the second case right, where right. the animals learn this signal. That's right. Yeah. And uh, what that suggests is that there is a whole buildup of activity. There's additional stuff going on before the surprising stimulus gets noticed by the circuit, as it were. Okay. Now, that might be a buildup of spikes, but it also might just be because it has to, the, the information has to be propagated up the hierarchy and then back down the hierarchy. And each mm -hmm. synaptic step takes an extra 10 milliseconds kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So... It suggests that there's potentially a fairly large hierarchy or very recurrent circuits that are responsible for calculating this surprise signal. Mm -hmm. Are you distinguishing or able to distinguish in your work something akin to learning versus realizing or paying attention to or other things that may be happening? So that's an interesting question. Um, the question of whether or not they're just paying more attention to it, we try to get at by measuring a variety of behavioral signals, including, say, for example, the dilation of their pupils. Mm -hmm. And we don't have any evidence to suggest that they are more attentive when we see these signals. Their pupil dilation is no different from the other times that it occurred and we okay. didn't see the signal. 
We also look at their running speed and we don't see any change in their running speed. So it suggests that it's not- They're on like they're, a treadmill kind of they're thing? They're on a treadmill, that's okay. right. So it doesn't, it suggests that they're not like, I don't know, just like kind of wigged out and they respond differently and this drives the response. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, there seems to be some kind of buildup of the calculation that implies learning. But- is the, uh, You may have just answered this, uh, yes. but is the amplitude of the response the same as the in the first case it's not surprise it's just they right so the amplitude is the same as in the first case where we have that violation of visual flow okay uh, but it's in a different part of the circuit so mm -hmm. in the first case it's actually the cell bodies that are uh, signaling this a particular type of cell body and that suggests that in that first case, that's a calculation that's happening potentially locally within the circuit. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in the second case, this is, as I said, the signal is in these dendrites that are receiving information from higher up the cortical hierarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, so suggesting that it's something that's part of the hierarchical calculations rather than a local calculation. Now that you've made this discovery, like what's next in this line of right. research, what does it tell you? So an example of uh, the kind of thing that this tells us, and, you know, obviously one of the things we're interested in is just understanding the brain. And sure. so, uh, you know, this is evidence that indeed the brain has a hierarchical predictive model, a generative model, as it were. And, you know, next steps will be trying to understand how this generative model works more fully, explore new stimulus space, mm -hmm. understand the type, the role of different cell types and neuromodulators in this model, etc. But uh, as well, one of the other things that we're very interested in is using the lessons that we gain from neurobiology to inform new machine learning designs. Yeah. So one of the things that we're interested in uh, exploring further is developing new unsupervised learning models based on some of what we learn here. And there are a few different avenues that we're interested in exploring this way. So one is we think, and it's a little bit too complicated to go into, I think, here, but... we got to at least try. Okay, so <laughs> there is another type of cell in the circuit that is responsible for sending inhibitory signals to these dendrites where we see these surprise responses. Mm. And we have been trying to rack our brains about, okay, so what is happening in the circuit? Why would it learn this surprise? And we wondered if one of the reasons it might learn this surprise is because there were changes in this other cell type that were inhibiting the dendrites. Mm -hmm. And in particular, what we've started to get interested in is uh, that there might actually be a connection with these results uh, with a class of unsupervised learning models known as contrastive predictive coding. So contrastive predictive coding is one approach to doing these sorts of next frame prediction models. And what they do in contrastive predictive coding is technically they're trying to maximize the mutual information between a higher order context variable and incoming stimuli. But the way that they do this is basically they compare a top-down prediction from high, up, up the hierarchy with the data, and then they compare that match to the extent to which the prediction matches other data samples from the same distribution, but not the appropriate frame. These are called negative samples. 
And from a machine learning perspective, uh, this has all sorts of advantages. But one of the things that we got thinking about from a neuroscience perspective is what if is potentially happening in the circuit is basically that this other cell type that normally inhibits these dendrites is having to actually learn that this is no longer a sort of negative sample. And so, so we're, we're starting to build ML models where what we do is we take a sort of contrastive predictive approach, but we have alternative circuits that are learning the data distribution for the negative samples and using that to compare to the positive samples. And this has potential interesting applications for online learning because you could do this now in a totally online manner. In a real-time, iterative. To, yes, and without having to store previous examples or anything like that, mm -hmm. uh, which might be interesting for kind of later extensions of this work to, you know, edge computing in the field kind of applications. Is this related to uh, like the concept of forgetfulness in a sense? Um, thinking of like forget gates and things like that that have come up in conversations in the past. Right, that's interesting. I mean... It's uh, not directly related. There have been people who have postulated that these other types of cells that I mentioned, these, these inhibitory cells, mm -hmm. might be involved in something like forget gates and output gates. And I yeah. think that's possible. What we're exploring here in particular is the idea that these cells are, as it were, you can think of it more like a, a GAN scenario. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that you're going to generate predictions from higher uh, from up in your higher up in your hierarchy right and then what you want to do to train your predictions is you want to not only have the data that you're trying to predict but also some negative samples that are going to try to fool your predictions as it were mm -hmm. and so then what you want to do is you want to train simultaneously your predictions to get better at differentiating the true data from the false data that you're generating but you also want to train that false data generator to generate better, better and better false, false the GAN data. Analogy. That's the GAN analogy. Yeah. That's right. So we're thinking of this as more like uh, that these inhibitory cells are effectively trying to produce false stimuli to fool mm -hmm. the predictive system. And then the predictive system's job is to try to learn that this is false and what's reality. It's kind of amazing to relate all of the machinery that goes into a GAN to a single cell. Yeah, right. <laughs> but or I guess that's a your population work, right? of cells, but this is my work. That's right. Yes, quite, quite. Is there an element of, of what's interesting here that in kind of traditional inference, if that makes any sense, like that you have only positive signal and here you've got kind of both positive and negative signal. That's right. And that serves a really useful purpose for training. And this is part of the reason that contrastive predictive uh, coding works well. In contrasting the positive samples to the negative samples, you can end up doing a lot better at capturing more interesting distributions uh, in your predictive system. The, the and why of, is that? Well, so there's a variety of reasons. One reason is there are these, so the classic predictive models in neuroscience and also some of the predictive models in machine learning, what you do is you generate a prediction, you compare the prediction to your incoming data and you take the difference. Mm -hmm. And then that difference uh, is your error signal and you can pass that back up the hierarchy in order to do more training of your prediction. 
This, these are called uh, predictive coding models, and it's based on a particular theory from some guys named Rao and Ballard that goes back to 1999, but which a lot of neuroscientists are interested in, and a few machine learning people, um, you know, David Cox's group at IBM has built the PredNet, which is basically just a stacked predictive coding system. Okay. And these systems can do interesting things, and they can do frame prediction, but arguably there are some difficulties with frame as in an image yes sorry so like you've got a movie mm -hmm. and you're you feed in a bunch of frames of the movie and then the job of the system is to predict the next frame of the movie and uh, do, do you mention that uh to say that that's one of the things that they're good at or that's one of the things that they're better at than other well things? so this is what they're designed to do these okay. sorts of predictive coding models got it uh but there's a slight problem with them, which is that you have this situation where if you've got a, so if you have a unimodal probability distribution over your data, mm -hmm. these models can work very well. But once you have complicated multimodal distributions, it starts to break down a little bit. And the reason is that if you think about it this way, okay, so let's say I make, I have a complicated multimodal data distribution. I make a prediction and I get I make a prediction that that it's going to be on a particular mode and then I get data from another mode. Mm -hmm. And what I'm going to do then in these standard systems is I'm going to try to reduce the difference between my prediction and reality. But what that's going to do is that's going to bring me off the original mode that I predicted right. into some in-between space that might actually have very low probability. So that's not actually what I want to do. Instead, what I want to understand is that I just sampled from the wrong mode there effectively, and I should have been predicting the other mode for that data. So potentially what you want is you want to be able to contrast your predictions to not only the incoming data you get, but to all the other negative data distributions from the, the data that you have received to know basically whether or not the problem was that you were in fact predicting a wrong part of the data as opposed to simply just not the right piece of data. Mm -hmm. And so um, by actually doing this contrastive uh, thing, you can, you can end up doing a much better job of making predictions with complicated probability distributions than you can with a standard kind of just like take the difference and learn mm -hmm. on that model. Mm -hmm. Does that also imply that it's better when the distributions itself are shifting or themselves are shifting as opposed to static distributions? Potentially. That's an interesting question. Um, I think that the... Uh, now, obviously, you have to be able to deal with shifting distributions for doing movie prediction because necessarily Every the distribution for a be, frame is right. distributed according to a conditional probability distribution based on the other frames. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're trying to learn. I think there's the other interesting question though, which is if you have a shifting dynamics, so the way in which frames depend on past frames changes over time, can you learn that? I'm not sure that a, some of these standard systems could deal with that. That might be require additional machinery for such networks. It's also an interesting question as to whether or not animals can do that because mm -hmm. um, arguably, I mean, probably animals could, but, but generally... How would you test for that? Well, yeah, you see, the funny thing is, <laughs> how would you test for that? Because generally our world, though it can be changing and though the actual kind of distributions of data that we receive are hardly stationary. 
the dynamics in the world are relatively stationary. Mm -hmm. So objects tend to move in consistent ways. Right. And, you know, it's not like the laws of physics occasionally switch on us. Right. Uh, right. And so as a result, uh, it's not clear that the brain has to be able to deal with shifting dynamics necessarily. But at the same Although time... there's clearly like things will happen in certain types of movies that are unexpected in the real world, but we right. still kind of expect them. Yes, and we can get used to them. And we that's get used right. to them, right. That's right. And so that's why I was about to correct myself, is even though it seems like maybe animals don't have to deal with that, our own intuition would be that we seem to be able to deal with that. Because like, let's say if we play a video game where the laws of physics are indeed a bit different, mm -hmm. over time we will get used to that video game and we will kind of understand its right. dynamics. Right. And so this gets back to the idea that, you know, and this is a discussion that we have in the sort of neuro AI intersection a lot, is, you know, how much is hard-coded, how much is innate, mm -hmm. and what can we learn and what can we not learn? And, and even though it is like indeniable that evolution endows us with a massive innate structure to help us understand the world. Mm -hmm. A lot of our core facilities also seem to be learnable and tunable. Mm -hmm. And so even something as simple as kind of being able to predict what stimuli you're going to receive in the near future. Our data, for example, suggests that that's something tunable. And it's possible that also the dynamics of these of the world is tunable for our models. Kind of going back to the this particular research and the hierarchical inference result and some of these other results, how close are you to having an implementation of that in the machine learning world? So it's something that we're working on and I've got a couple of students who are trying to build these systems where the negative examples are being learned by an additional network that's doing the uh, off-distribution estimation. Uh, and I think that, you know, we've made some progress on that. We're still probably a ways away from it. We're, in the grand scheme of things, a small academic lab compared mm. to, you know, the big ML outfits and in industry and stuff like that. So it'll probably take us longer than it could take uh, them, <laughs> even just because of the compute resources that we have to compete for. But uh, I think that, you know, hopefully within the year, we'll have a working model of the basic thing and we'll be able to say whether or not this actually works well in practice mm -hmm. or if it's just a bad idea. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, separating this particular... Uh, result with the negative examples from the, the concept of hierarchical instance, like how well has that idea been explored? I've got to imagine that there are examples of that uh, or, you know, prior research into that idea. Or is that novel in some way? I think it's actually reasonably novel. I haven't okay. seen a lot of stuff this way for predictive models. Obviously, there's a lot of work now in training adversarial systems where you generate sort of negative data that you have to discriminate from positive data and mm -hmm. that's right a, you know just across ml tons of this stuff mm -hmm. uh but using this specifically to do uh you know the predictions in time series i haven't seen yet but you know i can't keep on top of all the literature <laughs> and so I, as i say this i'm sure someone's publishing exactly this thing right, right right there's a talk happening right now yeah that's right exactly yes <laughs> nice so what are some of the other things that your lab is working on so uh another area that we're really interested in is the use of memory systems for reinforcement learning mm. and this is again motivated by the neuroscience literature so 
One memory of the things, systems like attention or so attention and memory are you know kind of intimately related. But let's maybe keep it simple for a moment and just focus on classical memory systems. And what I mean by that is uh, to give you a sense. So the region of the brain that is typically associated with what we call episodic memories is the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. Episodic memories just refer to actual memories of events from your life right. where you stuff can say happened. stuff that happened. Yeah. You can say X occurred in this location with these people there at this time. And that depends on this brain region, the hippocampus. We know that from, you know, decades of neurology research, mm -hmm. people who have their hippocampus damaged can't form new episodic memories. Mm -hmm. uh, what's so the idea in applying the reinforcement learning is if in addition to remembering a kind of a current cumulative reward, mm -hmm. I can remember stuff that I did and stuff that happened, That's I right. should be able to converge faster to some kind of... Yes, right. So what's interesting is in the neuroscience field, there's been more and more evidence suggesting that the hippocampus is involved in reinforcement learning in animals. And indeed, the hippocampus makes direct projections to some of the core circuits in a region called the basal ganglia that seem to be key for reinforcement learning. Um, and various theoreticians have posited that the hippocampus in providing this sort of episodic record could be used for bootstrapping reinforcement learning. Basically, does the hippocampus predict or does it just serve up experiences? Is it just memory or is there some inference in there too? That's a great question. So the original proposal, which was made by Peter Diane and Mate Lengiel back in the mid 2000s, was that it just provides you with a record of explicit trajectories that you've done through the state space, basically. Okay. And they posited that by taking an explicit record of trajectories you've done, then you can just rely upon like, okay, well, I did this last time and I got something okay, so I can just do it again. Mm -hmm. And they showed that this could speed up reinforcement learning in the kind of early phases or just after a change occurs. Uh, but subsequent work in neuroscience has suggested that the hippocampus is really key for, in fact, making predictions and making inferences and doing mm. imagination, kind of doing forward rollouts in, in, your, in your mind. Yeah. And so I think that... How do you uh, test for that? Uh, well, <laughs> so the way that they test for this, uh, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different ways, but fundamentally what you do is you record from the hippocampus while an animal or a person is doing something mm -hmm. and you train a decoder to take hippocampal huh. activity and say what the person was looking at or where the animal was in the environment. Yeah. And then you can show that when you then put the person back in this task or the animal back in this environment and you have them go around and you're recording from their hippocampus, there will be moments where your decoder says, oh, what's actually happening right now is that the person's looking a few frames ahead in the in the sequence, mm. or the animal is down the hallway uh, okay. to the right kind of thing. Huh. And so that suggests that the activity in the hippocampus is basically following a forward trajectory through the role, uh, yeah. through space or time, wow. uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, and so th there's also other evidence um, suggesting that the representations in the hippocampus themselves are in fact predictive. There's uh, within reinforcement learning, uh, this was another contribution from Peter Diane. There's um, 
a uh, particular type of representation called successor representations. That successor. Successor. That's okay. right. And they're a way of representing state space that allows you to do one-shot adaptation to changes in the reward function. And hmm. what's the way they do that is basically they pull out the transition dynamics from the MDP out of the expectation for your value calculation. Uh, or rather, it pulls the reward out of the expectation. And that means that now when you redo your reward calculations, you don't need to worry about averages, um, which, which speeds things up. And so, so anyway, what's interesting is um, Kim Stackenfeld and Sam Gershman showed in a paper, uh, I guess, either two years ago or one year ago now, uh, that the representations in the hippocampus seem to adhere in many ways to successor representation type dynamics and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, predictions. And so what's interesting is successor representations are basically a way of representing the environment in a predictive manner because how mm -hmm. they do this is they represent each state according to the expected future occupancy of that state from your current state. So, it's so kind you're of saying that there's evidence that fundamentally the hippocampus isn't just a kind of snapshot of scenes, but no. it's an inherently predictive representation of this scene kind of happened and this thing kind of resulted from whatever action you took. Right. So, so what's interesting is that that's roughly right, but I would rephrase it slightly. I would say that it looks like the hippocampus is not just a record of what you've seen or done, but it is a record that is encoded in a manner that also predicts what you are going to now do mm. in the future. It's like taking your past to predict your future at a very high-level representation of the mm -hmm. environment. Huh. And, and this, this successor, was a successor, successor representation? Successor representation, yes. That's kind of the machine learning approximate of that or analog. That's right. That's okay. right. So this, you know, the successor representation is just an idea from machine learning. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is that it seems to predict a lot of data in the hippocampus. Huh. Now, is the hippocampus actually a successor representation? Sure. I don't know. But I think the core idea that part of what the hippocampus is doing is providing a sort of predictive map for the environment and something that would also allow you to do... But even more so that it's not, not just like functionally predicting, but it's representationally predicting. That's right. It's representationally That's predicting. That's pretty cool. And so um, my lab is working on a variety of implementations of reinforcement learning that takes advantage of these sorts of systems to then do much faster adaptation to changes in the environment. Okay. So in particular, what we're building, because what's interesting, right, is you've got, so the successor representation had been developed previously in machine learning, but then there's a variety of interesting questions in terms of, well, okay, what if now you are explicitly storing different memories of different successor representations for different contexts? And furthermore, what if you can use those memories of different successor representations for different environments in order to sort of load up your predictions for any new context. We think that this should be able to help you to do reinforcement learning much more rapidly, and we mm -hmm. have some initial data showing that that is indeed the case. Um, so kind of broadly, the idea is that we want to take the lessons that we're learning about how memory systems in the brain work and use those to inform the design of new RL systems that are better at adapting to changes in the environment. Huh. 
Interesting. Interesting. Sounds like it's still a little early or do you have an implementation? So we do have an implementation in toy tasks that works really well. And okay. we can basically Is take... Is toy tasks a specific thing or just toy tasks? Uh, toy tasks, meaning uh, just, you know, all the set standard kind of stuff. So grid worlds, Atari games, these okay. sorts of sim very simple tasks, right? Yeah. And what we find is that, you know, in, in very simple tasks, this approach of storing multiple different successor representations for different contexts, uh, and also utilizing what we call a sort of evolutionary initialization, where we learn a sort of average successor representation mm -hmm. across contexts that we use to initialize all the memories. Combining these two ideas leads to RL systems that can do very rapid, just kind of like one-shot adaptation to changes in the environment, uh, which is cool. But we need to changes, see changes distribution-wise or step-to-step? -step changes to the reward function, critically. Changes to the reward And also function. changes to the, the task. So if you drop the agent in a new task mm -hmm. or within a given task, if you move where the rewards are located or change the reward function in any way, mm -hmm. that it can adapt quickly to this. And it, it changes to the reward function inherent to kind of you know your typical atari game or is it so that's a not twist something, on? yeah so typically we do this uh i should say when we look at changes to the reward function we're doing this in little environments that we've made and, okay. and typically it's like foraging tasks where the agent has to go through a little maze to find rewards and mm -hmm. what we do is we change where the rewards are located okay and you know if you just take a changing standard, where a reward is located doesn't necessarily dictate a new reward function, does it? Well, it Am I does. thinking about that correctly? Well, it does because the reward function is typically defined as, okay, you know, for any particular state and action pair, you're going to mm -hmm. get a particular reward. And so if you change the location of the reward now, the state action pair that gets you a reward is different than the one Got that it, it was Got previously. It. Okay. And if you, there are a variety of different ways to do this. So it should be said that this result in and of itself it's not super exciting. Other people have shown ways to adapt to changes in the reward function. Mm -hmm. But what we're hoping is that we'll be able to show that it is early days, but you know, if, as we scale up, that we'll be able to show that in more complicated environments, as you change the context and you drop the agent down into different contexts, they will always be able to adapt very rapidly by using these sorts of predictive memories to guide mm -hmm. their updates. Okay. Yeah, I thought you were talking about like structural changes to the reward function as opposed to kind of parameterized. No, just parameterized okay. changes to the reward okay. function. That's right, because that's what the successor representation is good at dealing with. Got it. You, it can update its parameters to the reward function in one shot very quickly with just a single multiplicative calculation. Okay. Well, sounds like really interesting work. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to share a bit about what you're up to. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.